GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. Uh, you're listening to our currently bi-weekly podcasts. I have Loaf and Loot Hero with me, and based on those names, you, you can already assume, because they're not normal names, that we're going to be talking about some weird stuff, um, some degen stuff, because we have people that uh, yeah that, that go under on the internet under a pseudonym. Um, before we dive in... The high-level goal of today would be to talk about loot, everything that's spun out of it, um, which kind of culminated into something called Dojo, which we'll dive into. It's going to be related to fully on-chain games. And in general, we want to talk a bit more about network-first game development. Before that, let's get a, a bit of background on our participants um, so we understand where they're coming from. We'll give a brief history of loot, and then we can, uh, we can continue the conversation from there. Loaf. A few minutes of, of you, sir. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, oh, well, uh, it's, it's good to be back, Nico. I think it's been a little while. Um, yeah, too long. Too long. It's, it's good to talk about some weird stuff again. Yeah, this, this, the, the, the pod needed some, needed some weirdness. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I've been a long-time builder, um, long-time crypto investor, and I, I kind of got back into the space around 2019, 2020, when... Um, when DeFi summer was happening, because I saw, you know, there's, a, there's actually a lot of interesting things being built at this point. Um, but I hadn't really um, kind of gone all in and 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 building and, and build a product. Um, but uh, my kind of my my venture into Loot happened about a week after Loot actually launched. So that was at like August 21. Um, and we basically just tried to create a website called a Bibliotheca. Um, for loot, which was just a, a subgraph that graphed all your loot projects together. Um, and that was just a weekend hackathon. And then from that, we realized, well, you know, maybe we should actually try to build this game that everybody's been talking about. Um, I'm sure Luther will go deep into the, the, the specifics about loot for people that don't get it. Um, but yeah, then from from that point on, you know, we kind of had this um, this idea of trying to build a fully on-chain ecosystem um, you know, decentralized first, um, all open source. And that kind of led us down a path of trying to build a game. Um, uh, yeah, the original game was designed in Solidity um, using kind of a, just using Solidity, a, um, the graph indexer, and, you know, just a basic client. Um, and kind of trying to do that, we realized actually this is a pretty hard problem to solve. And so we um, we kind of like scrapped all that um, rebuild it again on Starknet um, for a few reasons. Uh, one being that you know we 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 saw um, we saw the benefit of Starknet over, um, over over just a raw EVM chain for purely because it's not an EVM. And that's not to say you can't build games on an EVM. Um, we just taken that approach that you know we we think an alternative EVM that's still compatible with 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 um. Uh, with mainnet uh, was the best approach, um, and it also came with an interesting um, language called Cairo, which allows you to create um, pretty interesting uh, provable games. And so that kind of led us down the route of of building a game on Starknet. Um, uh, and then we built that one game. Uh, it took us about six months, and then we realized that wasn't good enough. So then we've re we've tried to do it again. 
Um, and I think we're up to the fourth iteration now, um, building uh, like the the Loot Realms Eternum game. Um, but you know, through that last period of two years, you know, lots of lots of stuff has happened. Um, I probably skipped over a few things because it's. Um, but yeah, I mean, most notably, um, uh, back in October, um, some of the Starknet crew uh, decided to build this uh, game engine called Dojo, which is a um, a way to easily build games um, on chain. Um, and so my time right now is really spent um, improving Dojo tooling, um, building Realms of Turnum, um, and kind of experimenting and, and trying to improve the developer kind of experience of building these on-chain games. So, yeah, that's kind of what I spend a lot of my time doing right now. Awesome. Thank you, Loaf. Um, we'll dig, dig into Dojo deeper um, later, but um, Luke Hillary, you want to give us a brief background? Yeah, so I originally entered this space mostly through the infrastructure side, like on the Bitcoin mining, Ethereum staking. Um, Ethereum staking was particularly interesting, interesting to me when the proof of concept, like when the proof of stake concept was first revealed and as an alternate way to secure a network using stake, I thought that was very interesting. So I became very involved with that community early on. Um, I participated in a lot of like the pre-Genesis beacon chains for stability and things like that. And that was my mo my main focus um, on the Ethereum side was just uh, helping with the proof of stake network, uh, running validators, things like that. And for the most part, I was just um, stacking yeast to get more validators. Like that was really just my my main focus. And I was aware of the NFT like craze, but I didn't I didn't fully understand it. I was just watching from the sideline. And I think at the time it just it felt like there was something there, but I didn't see it yet. And it just felt like okay, we have ERC twenties, like we have fungible tokens, which you know, like Bitcoin has. And now we have this non-fungible token, but it just seemed like everybody was, like the difference between the tokens was this one points at this image on IPFS and this one points at this other image. It just didn't feel novel enough to me. So I was just kind of on the sidelines for a while. And then, yeah, Loot launched. And, you know, I just like scrolling crypto Twitter. And um, yeah, I think I read somebody posted about it. I forget who it was and just kind of laying out a basic thesis and, yeah, it just for me, it immediately clicked. And that was already like halfway into things picking up. So, yeah, I think I bought my bag like somewhere around 10 ETH or something, which was a considerable amount for me, especially because I'm just trying to stack 32 ETH to get a validator. So it was kind of a big detour from that. Um, but yeah, it just it, it clicked for me and um, pretty much immediately, like what what this could turn into. And so, yeah, I bought bought my bag and never looked back and yeah, I've been contributing to loot and, you know, just the broader on-chain gaming, on-chain art. I mean, just the fully on-chain movement, I think, uh, since then. Fantastic. While we're on the topic, could you perhaps briefly walk us through, you know, maybe give a, a brief background on what loot is, um, why it clicked for you, and then how come that it feels like half of the on-chain fully on-chain gaming world stemmed from loot? How do you how did that path run itself? Yeah, so, I mean, I wasn't heavily involved in the NFT space prior to loot, right? I was like a sideline just viewer. So, I, you know, some of the stuff, like my, it's just my take on like, this is what I saw happening. And then after loot, it, it seemed like there was a big transition, but I realized that like I wasn't in, in the trenches before. So some of that could be off. But yeah, from my perspective, it, you know, like the meta went from 
we have we have fungible tokens, non-fungible tokens, and we're going to use these non-fungible tokens to point to these images, and then we're going to trade those those JPEGs, right? And then I think when Loot launched, it wasn't just we could possibly do on-chain gaming because I think a lot of people realized that on-chain gaming on L1 with gas costs probably wasn't even reasonable. I think the big unlock for me was that you weren't taking like an entire game state and then storing it on Ethereum. You were saving the state of a single item or a bag, right? And so you're saying, okay, well, I can't store like Dojo, right? I can't store these autonomous worlds yet. This is so early. But maybe we could have these small parts of the world that get stored on chain and then people can do things with those loot bags, earn experience, right? And like now the non-fungible part is a lot more interesting because it's the same as when you play a game and you've invested all this time into these items and now they're unique. Like there's a natural non-fungibility about in-game items that I think a lot of people understood immediately. And then I think it also just awakened a renaissance and I think it just rose the ceiling in terms of what we can do on chain because, you know, people had been doing artwork on chain, like pixels on chain. And I think that just, you know, removes the roof off of the ceiling in terms of what's possible now. And I think it was a great time because we were seeing uh, layer two rollups start to launch at the time, like Arbitrum, et cetera. And it immediately provided a need for additional bandwidth and, you know, Loot people, the people that were attracted to loot, were kind of like the frontiers. And I feel like everybody went out, like the treasure team went out to Arbitrum and settled it, right? We pretty shortly after went to StarkNet, but everybody was in search of enough compute to actually, you know, run these games on chain. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a pretty quick, quick summary of like the vibes that that I saw in, in the most distilled form. Okay. So I'm trying to explain it back to you, right? So just to make sure I understand it correctly. The interesting parts or and what distinguished loot from most of the other NFTs is that most of the other NFTs were essentially a pointer um, to somewhere else, something that was on off-chain. While loot was, you know, these, and just maybe as a as a very brief background, if, if you're unaware what loot is, loot, loot were 10,000 NFTs that were essentially a black box with some white text, which was a RPG style gear inventory. So you had a helmet, you had a weapon, you had uh, I don't, like you had like a secondary um, weapon as well. You had boots, rings, necklaces, etc. So eight items, um, and all of that existed on chain. And so I think because everything was on chain, it naturally led to how can we build games around this? Um, and games around this would mean that you would need to read the information and what was in these loot bags also on chain because it exists on the blockchain, which naturally led to, okay, why don't we try to build things around it that in, exist entirely on chain, which then resulted in, oh, we can't do this on ETH, um, which then you know resulted in what you mentioned, which is the treasure slash magic team building on Arbitrum and um, Loaf and some of the other builders deciding that Starknet was the way to go. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think there's. Um, uh, it's it's like compute. I mean, we're still not even there, to be honest. Like we're we, I think four eight four four is going to be the watershed moment that we're all been waiting for. Um, now, of course, you can run these games on like a side chain, um, but 
you know, what's really appealing to myself and, and Ludiro is that, you know, we want the persistence of these these worlds. Like we want the um, we want to be able to construct these worlds from L1 essentially, and you can only really do that with a rollup. Um, that really brings the hardness that we're looking for. I mean, we're definitely in the 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 the, the, the extreme um, end of the spectrum in that case. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I also think like one of the uh, I mean one of the challenges with solidity um, in my mind is like it, it wasn't really designed as like a um, a language to write complex applications. It's really a little money scripting. It's like a little scripting language. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of initiatives to, you know, create complex um, Ethereum apps uh, now, like Solidity apps, like MUD. Uh, and MUD's fantastic innovation. Um, and it's, it's because you need, like, you need, like, as your application grows, um, and any, anybody that's built like a really big application in any type of language, like you need maintainability and like you need, you need to be able to consistently like test it and like harden it and whatnot. And, um, Solidity as a language kind of falls short when, as, as your application grows. And so one of the appeals of Starknet specifically was that it isn't Solidity. It's actually this other language called Cairo, uh, which has evolved significantly in the last year and a half and is very Rust-esque and, um, allows you to build quite, um, very, very complex um, applications. Um, and because uh, Starknet is really a ZK um, roll-up, you know, these Cairo programs that you write, which, which are the games, they can actually all compile down um, and uh, to ZK circuits and then actually be proven on any type of um, uh, Starknet virtual machine. So you can run these games that we're building actually locally in your browser and, like, prove that you've actually run these games um, uh, you know, truthfully, um, but that's another rabbit hole we have to go down. Um, but yeah, so that, that was just another reason for um, uh, reason for choosing Starknet. Yeah, I'll just add one more thing to the the like loot genesis. I think the idea that a lot of people had too is that similar to generative art. In the case of generative art, it's not the artwork itself that's stored on chain; it's the mechanism to produce the art that's stored on chain. And in the case of loot, it's kind of similar where you could think about the loot bags themselves if you wanted. Like, I own this loot bag. But I think a lot of people are also looking at that and thinking, you have this mechanism for distributing items for a game fully on chain. So it's kind of two parts. There's the ownership piece, which I think is just like a celebration. Like, I view my loot bag. I'm not looking for utility for my loot bag. I think we're well beyond that phase. It's just the celebration of that contract and of that idea. And like, it's like a, just a culture, culturally significant collectible at this point for me. Um, and so when you, when you get to that point, you just look at the loot contract as just being this fully on-chain item generator that anybody could use in their game. And that's kind of what we've taken over to Starknet and Loot Survivor is that spirit of it, right? You don't own, you don't bring your loot for Loot Survivor. You don't own it. But what we've done is we've brought in this independent module that anybody can use. If you want loot items in your game on chain, we have this loot module. If you want to make that an ownership thing and try to speculate on NFTs, you can. Um, but inherently, we didn't bring that part of loot with us to start that. And that, that was fairly intentional. So that's just to cap back off on other perspectives that I think people had on loot initially is that half we're speculating on the price is like, I own this thing and I'm going to play this game and it's going to be the most powerful item in the game, something like that maybe. But then a lot of other people are just thinking this composability element. They're like, you have this contract on chain that produces these items and anybody can use those for, you know, whatever purpose they want. 
Loth, you um, you decided to build. You, you kind of touch upon your your story and your adventure in trying to build the realms game on chain first on Ethereum now on Starknet. Um, could you maybe touch a bit more on some of the difficulties you faced while building it, maybe within the Starknet ecosystem, and then why you decided in particular to build Dojo and what the advantages of, of using Dojo to build some of these on-chain games is versus not using Dojo? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think anybody that's tried to build one of these games without any framework will see that, you know, you need to be a master of a lot of different um, kind of technologies. You need to really understand indexing. Uh, you really need to understand how to write quality smart contracts. And you need to really understand how to make um, quality interfaces. And knowing all those three things um, whilst trying to design a game is is a pretty moment, pretty huge um, uh, task. So... Um, yeah, so that like some of the early games that we built, um, you know, they were they, they were just very hard to like adapt and, and like evolve. And the whole point of as Ludo was talking about is like this level of composability. And so, um, you know, really the thesis from from day one uh, was what we tried to do with Realms and Eternum um, was that it was a totally open like sandbox world, you know, with a couple of like initial like you know um, so, some functionality initially deployed. Um, and then anyone can, can extend that functionality exactly like how uh, all smart, smart contracts are meant to work, right? Um, but to actually get to that point where people want to build and, and, and compose um, on top of your game, you need like a level of standards. It's like it's like Ethereum right now with your you know your NFT standard, your ERC twenty standard. It's these standards that allow this like composability and there's like this next layer of of um, applications to be built, and it's very similar to games. Like you, like if you want to build an open world, like in this um, in this way, like you need to have like this level of standardization. Otherwise, it's very very hard for people to come and build. Um, and so uh, that kind of and back in twenty one, there wasn't any frameworks or anything, and so we just kind of did the best we could with what we had. Um, and you know, you kind of go down paths. You realize, okay, we shouldn't have done that. Okay, that was good, but that wasn't good enough. Uh, just like building anything. Um, and then it came to a point, um, uh, I think MUD was released in like September. Um, our engine, the, like the previous engine, which was based off um, this kind of a module controller system designed by this guy called Parama um, on StockNet. Um, we just kind of came to the realization um, that like our systems was, was, we didn't have the composability that we needed. And so we kind of started fresh. And at that point, um, uh, uh, Cairo was transitioning from like its original version to Cairo one, which is like a significant upgrade. And so we, we kind of, um, uh, the Starknet community is pretty, pretty tight knit and everybody talks to one another. So we just created a group, um, and we decided to rebuild, um, uh, we decided to build Dojo, which is a, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a framework for building on chain games. It allows you to get from like zero to one in like in a few days rather than months. Um, and what Dojo does is it abstracts away like the complexity of indexing. Um, it, it abstracts away like how you write these games, so you don't have to like think about how you're going to do your contracts. It just kind of explains to you like how you should do it, and so you can like purely focus on like your logic um, rather than having to worry like worry about like how am I actually going to build this damn thing. Um, 
And so, yeah, so trials and tribulations of trying to build games kind of led to that, as well as like looking at the market. I think Mud was a big, Mud to me, the, the biggest unlock was this idea of tables and like standardizing the data structure um, on chain um, because that allows for in instant indexing. Um, so, yeah, that was a big unlock. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, for anybody that's looking, thinking about building on a chain game, start with the framework first and then like make it bespoke to your needs, but don't. Just go, yeah, yeah. That'd be my advice. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think a, an example of some early experiments we did on layer one with loot itself was trying to track item experience or bag experience. So there was a project called the Rift, and the idea was that people were doing all kinds of things with their loot bags, right? They were minting like Genesis Mana. They were going to like the, the Crypton Cavern or the, the, the Crypt game, right? And raiding the Crypts. There's all these things happening. Wouldn't it be cool if you were getting experience for that? And then you could have this value accrual, which was rewarding people for, you know, um, being involved in the space. And the, the system to build that um, ended up being fairly complex, but it still had a ton of limitations. Uh, most notably, like, you know, how much XP do you get for minting Genesis Mana versus raiding a crypt dungeon, right? And, and, and then it's, it's permissioned, right? Because if it's just open, well, then I'm just going to call the contract and say, Loot Hero's bag gets, you know, plus 10,000 XP, right? So there was this, like, really tough trade-off between having it permission, having it permissionless, and then just even like the technology stack involved was extremely complex. And it was, I mean, heroic attempt. Um, but yeah, ultimately it just, I mean, L1 gas fees was another consideration, right? There was just so many reasons that it just was not doable. And so, yeah, now to be in a world with Dojo, Mud, and these kind of frameworks on, you know, zero knowledge backed rollups, um, it's incredible. Yeah, nothing was ever going to work on L1. <laughs> it was the amount of, I'd hate to think of the amount of gas that everybody spent on uh, back in that, that crazy day. Yeah, it was substantial. That's for sure. Yeah, it was, the, the miners were licking their lips. Um, yeah. Loof, perhaps this is a good moment to tell us about Loof Survivor, the game you've built. Um, what's special about it? Perhaps we here can uh, pitch in as well. Yeah, well, I mean, Ludero is probably the best person to speak on this. He's he's done a lot of the um, uh, like work on the on the Cairo side, and um, so yeah, sorry, I was on I was on mute. Yeah, so we started developing Loot Survivor initially. Like the, the early version was mostly just an adventure game that that we wanted to do in tandem with Realms, and um, this was this predated Mud, and so we were developing a lot of this, and then. Mud got released, you know, within a few months of doing it. And then we quickly realized that that's an extremely powerful way to organize, you know, data and systems on chain. So it was kind of immediately like, okay, you know, we should definitely be investing into that. And so we kind of hit this juncture where as it related to a loot adventure game, we had to decide, were we going to wait for, you know, Dojo, what would eventually be Dojo to be complete to do something or, Maybe we can still do something, just not quite as extensive, not as quite as open world. And so, yeah, we kind of had that, that that discussion. We thought about it for a while, and we decided that we, we could still do something, even without, like, something that was more contained. <clears throat> and so from there kind of spawned the idea of an on-chain arcade machine. 
And as a model, I think that's really powerful because it, it gives everybody who's working on it like a really clear sense of what this thing is, right? No, it's like you don't put quarters into Donkey Kong and expect to like meet other people in the Donkey Kong verse, right? And you, you put your quarters in, you play for 10, 15 minutes, you die. And ideally, maybe you get a high score and that's it. So it kind of set the framing around the length of the game, the type of the game, the cost of the game, all of that. And it felt like a really strong model that we hadn't seen played out before. And so, yeah, we, we weren't pursuing that. And so part of making that work was getting the cost down as low as possible for the user, because if they're going to put, ideally for an arcade machine, if you're going to put two bucks in there, the arcade machine can't cost like $10 in electricity to power for that 15 minutes or something, right? And that's kind of the trade-off with gas that we wanted this thing to be really low cost, like you know, even a dollar. But we need the entity that's sponsoring or funding that development, Biblioteca DAO, to be able to be profitable from that. <clears throat> and so we need that gas trade-off to make sense. We need them to pay a dollar, and then it only costs like 10 cents in gas. And now we open up the possibility to like, you know, like the paymaster idea where like, we're just going to actually pay for the gas. So now the users don't even need to know about it. They're putting in a buck. We're covering the 10 cents for gas, and they're off to the races. So... Yeah, we were pursuing that and developed a lot of, I think, an alternate, an alternate, an alternate, alternative framework, really, um, which is mostly focused on a single slot game. And so, when you're, when it comes to gas costs on the blockchain, the most of the gas is storage because if you want to store something on chain, then every node has to store that data forever, and so that ends up being very costly. Um, and then the other side is the compute side. Where if you run like if you run a game um, a game action, then on a traditional network, every node on the network also has to run that. So like I tell my normie friends, imagine playing Halo, but instead of you hosting the server for like your little group, imagine if you had to host the server for everyone playing Halo, and everybody playing Halo had to host it for everybody else. Like that wouldn't make sense. So Starknet gets rid of the compute thing because now only one node has to run the compute and then can just publish the proof. And that's amazing. But the storage is still there. Everybody has to store this data. So getting down to a single slot is really big in that regard because it means we're using the absolute minimum amount of storage. And the storage side is like a seat on the bus, right? It's like, that's the minimum. You have to buy one ticket. It doesn't really matter how many stops, right? That's like the compute. Like if you get on the bus, if you're going to stop two, stop three, that all rounds to zero. It's that bus ticket. So, yeah, from there, we, we got Loot Survivor down into a single storage slot, which is like 252 bits on Starknet. And so that's that's the full adventure. So that's your health, your experience, your gold, your items, your stats. Everything that is you when you're playing that game, for the most part, is in one single storage slot. And that just means it's it's close to the absolute minimum cost that a game could be on chain because everything you do is just going to be one storage update. There's a lot of compute because we're leaning into that heavily by dynamically generating all sorts of things. Even the beast in Loot Survivor, when you battle them, is actually generated kind of dynamically. We don't even store any of that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's a pretty pretty quick summary of just like the conception through the actual genesis of that specific on-chain arcade model, which then led to Loot Survivor.
thing. I think I'll pause there and yeah, I give you a chance to ask mm-hmm. specific questions or things like that. Perhaps you can give us a background. What is what is this game like? How can one can people play it? And then two, yes. what does it look like? Yeah, so it's available right now. Um, if you go to realms.world, I think there's a portal to it from realms.world. It's available today on uh, Gorilla Testnet. So if um, you need a Starknet wallet um, to play, so like Bravos, Argent, and you'll want to make sure you switch to Testnet on there. And there's faucets to get free Testnet ETH. Um, and I think even in the game, it'll in the onboarding for Testnet, it'll automatically bring you over there. Um, so yeah, it's it's up there on Testnet. So if you go to realms.world and you go to it, it should guide you to like the Gorilla network. But just whatever you're doing, make sure you're on Gorilla, and it'll guide you through. And the onboarding is pretty quick once you're once you have a wallet and everything's funded. Um, we've we've added this. We, we've incorporated the the ability of account abstraction into it to create what's called an arcade wallet. And so that's similar to if you're at an arcade and you know they kind of transition from tokens to those arcade cards, right? You'd go to the machine and then you'd fund your arcade card. You'd put like you know 10 bucks on it and you'd give it to your kid. Or if you were a kid, your parents would give you that card. You could go around and put it in all the machines. Um, so that that's part of the onboarding now. And the nice part is once you have that card, there's, we do signless transactions. So instead of having to click explore and then you have to like sign it with your wallet, that just flows through. So you'll go through the onboarding, get your test net set up, you get your arcade account. And once you're there, and that's kind of a one-time thing, it feels like an arcade machine, which is that you just pick your starting item, which would be one of the basic loot weapons, which would be a club, uh, a short sword, a wand, or a book, and give it a name and hit start. And now you're in the game, and it's going to start kind of in a Pokemon Red fashion, where you're always going to battle a beast that is weak against your item. So if you pick a short sword, then you're going to get a magical monster uh, beast, which has cloth armor. So your blade is going to you know, be very strong against that. And so you're going to kind of one hit that first beast. You're going to get your first level up of it, and when you level up, you get a number of things. One, you get to invest the stat point. So the adventures have uh, seven, seven stats in total, three physical, three mental, and one metaphysical, which is luck. And so when you level up, you get to invest in one. So you can you know, invest in strength, which will increase your attack power, increase your dexterity, to increase your chance of playing, that sort of thing. When you level up, you also have the chance to buy potions to replenish your health. And that's the only time you can buy potions is during a level up. And then uh, you can buy upgraded items. So it uses the 101 loot items in the game. And so you start with just a basic weapon and then each level up, you get a random choice of 21 weapons and those get uh, 21 items and those get randomly generated. So you say, okay, I started with say a short sword. Now I see there's a katana available. I'm gonna upgrade to a katana. So you buy, you know, you get your upgrades, and then you go out exploring again. And every time you go exploring, you either find beasts, obstacles, or golden health. In the case of beasts, you can battle them or flee. In the case of obstacles, you either dodge them or you get take damage. And that'll be based on your intelligence, which you can upgrade. And that's pretty much the cycle. So you you find these beasts, you defeat them to get XP for your adventure and for your items. And um, 
you level up your adventure, you level up the items. The the items grow in greatness, which is like canon pulled from the loot contract. Uh, if you read the contract, it assigns a greatness to the items. So we call it greatness in Loot Survivor as well. And when they reach certain greatness levels, they get special names, just like in our loot bags. They could be like Demon Grasp, Katana of Skill. You'll kind of unlock those names and those have special powers. Um, so yeah, that's that's generally the loop though. And you're you're going to die for sure. It's an arcade game. It's intended for to last on average between five and fifteen minutes. So you know, we want this to be something that you can that you can play quickly. Like uh there's a pretty good mobile experience for the game right now. So you can just go on, you put in like two dollars in tokens. Eventually the gas would be nominal. So you call it like three bucks total with gas. You put it in this game and you know you're committing to like five to 15 minutes and that's it. There's not like this extended experience where you're going to like level up these items today and then next month you're going to keep leveling them up. The whole game is just encapsulated within that one game, just like an arcade game. Yeah, it's, it's very much a roguelike game and, you know, every level is procedural. So every time you play the game, it'll be different. Um, a lot of work's been done to... Uh, you know, um, in the anti-botting kind of department to stop people being able to bot this thing. Um, and so, you know, I, it's a challenge to anyone to try to bot this thing. And um, I know Lutero's done a lot of work um, st stopping that. And a few people actually early on did manage to bot it um, and they exposed some holes. Um, but we think it's got to a point right now where um, you could still try to bot it, um, but you wouldn't get very far. And, you know, you're not going to get... To, to actually get late game, late, uh, I mean, I'm terrible at the game, but to actually get late game, like you really need to like, you really need to think hard. Like it's, it's Dark Souls, maybe not quite Dark Souls level, but, um, you know, you, you need to understand what's going on and um, think about it. Um, so, but I mean, one thing, um, uh, just kind of leading into this like whole idea around composability is that the whole game has been designed in a bunch of different kind of libraries. So new game developers can, kind of fork the code base and maybe they like build different logic but all the um like it, you know maybe maybe different combat logic or something but like all the beasts all the items all the stats it's all nicely um uh you know written into these little folders and so you can fork the game easily and make your own alterate you know you can make your own version of it quite easily so i encourage anyone to try to do that yeah and the adventure module particularly is useful because like we said, it fits inside a single storage slot, right? And you have a lot of optionality there. If there's a game you want to build, right? You have this adventure that has eight items, right? Those could be whatever items you want. In the case of loot, it's a weapon, five armor items, and two jewelry. But you can make whatever game you want. You have slots for eight items. And those items include uh, experience and then also a pointer to specials, right? So that's... In the case of loot, there's three specials. There's like the two name prefixes and the suffix. But in like the modules, those are just treated like specials. So those are just called specials. And you have special one, special two, special three. And when we're doing loot survivor, you know, we use of power. We use those suffixes for that. But anybody could use whatever specials they want. So the, the adventure structure data model and then the library at the top level is is a really good form factor for somebody wanting to build the absolute cheapest possible on-chain game um, because you have you have access to this really rich adventure um, that has 
all of these things built in. The the other thing I, I want to point out about an on-chain arcade <clears throat> is just contrasting it with a physical arcade and the massive advantages of it. Because like I said, when I was initially looking at the NFT space, you know, pretty much anything beyond just like financial transactions, right? Like Bitcoin makes a lot of sense to me. Ethereum being able to do that with programmable money made a lot of sense. But when I first looked at like the NFT movement, I just felt like it, it was it was being forced or something. Like I didn't really see the utility there. Um, so I like to compare things to the real world. And so I like arcade machines and I've played a lot of them growing up. And so when you compare the two, you see that on-chain arcade machines have massive advantages and it uses the space really well. So the first would be availability, right? If, if you're assuming you're working on, you know, fully permissionless roll-ups, right? Like not maybe what we have today, but where we're headed, then these things are pretty much fully backed by the security of Ethereum. So it's almost like you have your bank account. Most people trust their bank account. Like that's really secure, right? You don't think someone's just going to steal your bank account money. Imagine being able to store your art, your game assets, everything in that level of security. And that's kind of how I feel about Ethereum. It's incredible. And then with that, it's kind of the availability, like the um, like the uptime, if you will. Uh, if you go to like an arcade, an arcade, maybe like this game machine's down, right? Because it broke or something. Uh, we're not going to have that problem, right? And in the case of Loot Survivor, we're incentivizing multiple clients. So the contract is always there, but maybe the client goes down. But if you have bunches of different clients, then that provides a lot of um, durability. Uh, and then like capital efficiency is another one. So, you know, those arcade machines are not cheap. So the you know, the people that run these arcades had to buy those machines. They have to maintain those machines. There's electricity costs. There's all those costs. If you think about Bibliotheca deploying Loot Survivor, once we deploy it and it's on chain, the cost is effectively zero, and we get global access, right? And that, that, that's that's incredible versus physical arcade machines where if you want to scale, you have to you know ship all of these physical machines around. It's and then the last and like one of the most important ones for me is the like the integrity of the leaderboard. Like that's a big part that drives competitive arcade. You go to an arcade and you want to have the top score of Galaga or Pac-Man or whatever your game is of choice. You go in there and you do it and you feel awesome. And then you go back to that arcade two weeks later and the leaderboard's been reset because someone unplugged the machine. And then you get in this problem where like, well, who has the top score across all the machines? And the way that works today is you have this like trusted group, which people submit videos to this group. And then that group watches the video and from this video determines if that's a legit score and then updates it. So obviously we don't have that, right? It was on chain. You know, if somebody gets the top score of Loot Survivor, there's absolutely no doubt that they made that score, right? Backed by zero knowledge proofs in our case, that that score is legitimate and it is the top score in the entire world. And then combining all of those together, because of the capital efficiencies, we can afford to distribute those tokens um, even, even at like the microtransaction level. So if there's $2.50 going into this machine, as it works today, about 50% of those go to the top three scores. So if you have the number one score on Loot Survivor, when somebody puts in their 25 tokens to play, you get approximately you know six to nine of those tokens as the first place score. And then the second place score gets some, the third place score. And then who's ever providing the client for the game, which is like the user interface, they get you know around five tokens for running the game. And then the, the Bibliotheca DAO for developing the game gets five tokens as well. 
So there's 25 tokens that goes in, which normally today is like $2.50. And then we can split that up and reward the players, reward the builders. And we can do this because of those capital efficiencies, right? Like normally you put 25 cents in an arcade machine. I can't imagine there's too much profit margin there, right? I mean, they have to pay for electricity. They have to pay for the rent. There's all these expenses. But with the on-chain arcades, uh, there's just so many good things working for them that I feel like, um, yeah, it could be it could be an important new model that we experiment with. Makes a ton of sense. I remember early in the Web3 gaming days, two years ago, we were having discuss discussions about would a single-player Web3 game make sense? Could that ever exist? We were thinking about what that would look like. And now we have a fully on-chain single-player game, which is um, perhaps the true way that Web3 games will, will exist, um, meaning fully on-chain, not necessarily single-player. Um, but this is really, really interesting. Loaf, Loaf, do you want to touch upon the composability aspect and how that translates into you know, being able to build more, maybe more complex or just other game experiences um, in a rapid fashion? Uh, yeah, so... Um, like, the... You know, when, when we when we build these applications on chain, you know, we expose all their function functionality to anyone that wants to interact with them. There's not there's no there's there's no like permissioned um, right access like an API. You know, you don't need an API key or anything. You just need your RPC provider, and you can you can build whatever experience you want on top. Um, but it comes back to what I was saying originally around like you need these set of standards around how to build these games because games are ultimately like they are rather complex. You know, they're not um, you know, like, you know, like the OG, um, I mean, it took like what, what Ethereum launched in 2014 and like, I mean, everyone was so excited about this idea of composability and I mean, and, and even Vitalik was talking about like, you know, one of his inspirations of making Ethereum was he had that sword taken away from him in WoW, right? <laughs> and like, um, and there were some like actually really novel experiments like way back antiquity of Ethereum, like 14, 15, I think there was a couple of like random games that were made, um, but they didn't really go anywhere. Um, and then, but it really took until like DeFi um, uh, to really like lean into the idea of composability. So what was that like six years um, to even get to that point? Um, and I mean, DeFi has its composability because you have the token standard, right? You, ERC twenty, everyone can you know you can pull from this, pull that, pull that, pull that, pull, then sell and arbitrage, do all the you know all the crazy stuff that you can do with DeFi, right? Um, but it all stems back to the, that that standard, the 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 actual the token standards, um, and so like games are like they're like you know they are way more complex than a single token, um, and so I think it's really important to um, bring this like level of open standards to your um to your game if you want people to actually build on top of it. It's all nice and well saying yeah it's composable come and build, but like you actually need to, need to do it. You need to like develop the standards and you need to develop the tools um, in order to be able to do that. Um, so I'm one of the things that I'm kind of like experimenting with and we'll do it with Lit Survivor, we're doing it with Eternum and we're going to do it with a bunch of Dojo games and I'm going to build it into the bunch of the Dojo documentation um, is like, so you have Dojo, right, as like a, like a framework to like structure your data, to structure your logic. Um, but that's just like step one. And then like step two is you have like your indexer um, that standardizes the data so anyone can query the data, like the off-chain um, data. Um, 
but then step three is actually building these like um you know kind of like game sdks so to speak so sdk is like a software software development kit um and with that kit comes like you basically build all your functionality into that kit um and you turn it into like a nice little package that people can reuse um, and so within that kit, you have like um, all the APIs that are exposed into your game, all the composability, um, all bundled up into that little thing that anyone can then just, um, you know, uh, mod your game easily. They can see all your contracts, um, how they're designed, and they can extend them. Um, but yeah, it, it really, like, it's it's really important to bring a level of standards. So if you really want to build a composable game, you need to develop those standards or you need to use a framework. Um, otherwise, your developers are going to have to relearn everything every single time. It's like, imagine if every game developer like recreated Unity or Unreal every single time. Like, it'd be nonsense. Um, but like, you know, if you know Unreal, you can just go and develop like, you know, a hundred Unreal games. Um, and so it's similar. I, I like to see it as a similar thing here. Is like you need to have these level of standards, and then once people know like one framework, then they can easily mod your game. Um, but it's important to like build another kind of you know a simple abstraction on top to allow that. Um, but that's like the extreme case. Um, and so that's like actually the hope with Loot Survivor because when we were like originally designing it, um, we were thinking like this isn't like the end game, this current game. It's like this is like let's let's like make the simplest possible game with like a couple buttons that you just press and like you explore. And like that was for the time right now because we want to ship it on like mainnet, right? Um, but actually all the logic and all the lore and everything that's been developed is like nicely composed in these little packages. So like the next generation of, of, of like loot survivor games could be like, you know, maybe there's a like a location-based game where like you hop from square to square to square and then you like run into other adventurers. But ultimately they're still using this like same logic that's been defined in the OG game. Um, but they've extended it in some way. So so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if I could add a little bit to that too though. Um yeah, like you, you could almost imagine where Dojo is going that Loot Survivor just becomes a place in this world and it's like the issuer of loot items in that world. So if you want to get a loot item and there's all kinds of items, like loot have special abilities and you know they kind of have this cultural significance. So maybe people want to have them in this world. Um, and if you want to get them, then you have to go into this dungeon, right? And it's just one of many dungeons, but it's the issuer of loot items. And you go in there and instead of it being like an arcade, this is like you go in with an adventure that is actually persistent. In the case of Loot Survivor, your adventure's health is going to zero, you know, in every every regard. And it has you're like die. Yeah, you're gonna die. And it has like idle death penalties even. So like if you don't make an action within eight minutes, it you'll die too. So like everything leads to death in Loot Survivor, but it's because it's an arcade game. But when we move these modules into an autonomous world like Dojo. Uh, that wouldn't be the case. And that adventurer could come in and, um, yeah, it could play as far in as, as it would want to try to get as good of items, but then it could opt to leave, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think I think the way that Loot Survivor is structured with all of this being module, like there's a loot module in there. So if anybody wants to build on loot on StarkNet, uh, you have this loot module. Everything Loot Survivor does related to loot is in that loot module. Again, it separates the ownership, right? We didn't bring, like, we didn't, like, copy-paste loot onto StarkNet. Instead, we brought this module that's like, hey, if anybody wants to build stuff, sure, if you want to build an owner, you know, a, an ownership, like NFT, you could. But I think it's more interesting to build 
experiences on top of Loot. And so, yeah, that's that's one aspect of Loot Survivor going into Dojo. And then you can imagine lots of these experiences. And the, the other comment there, as it relates to like SDKs and just bringing down the barrier for development, I think there's there's two forces at play. One is making developers more efficient. And the other is allowing people who aren't developers to contribute to tasks that would traditionally be reserved for developers. And I think that's the much more substantial opportunity. And, you know, AI has helped out a lot with that. And with Dojo and these frameworks, I think combined with AI, they give way more people the opportunity to contribute. And it's very obvious that people want to contribute. Even in the case of like Blue Survivor, there's all there's people that are always like, oh, wouldn't it be fun if the game did this and the game did that? And it's like, yeah, that would absolutely be fun. But we only have like, you know, a couple developers working on this. We can't do everything. But imagine if all of those people with ideas could just quickly, you know, click a few buttons and then spin up this alternate that had this extra features. And then we could test those out and play them and say, not only was that a good idea, but it actually is good in practice and that's awesome. And now we're going to keep building on top of that Lego tower. And so that's another important part of the equation is just allowing more people to contribute. Whereas in the past, if you're building everything from scratch, right? If you're going to build a house, not many people can build a house from scratch. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's a big on. I reckon, we're, I reckon we've got like two to three years left as like developers. And like, unless you're, unless you're like, you know, uh, like coordinating a bunch of AIs or coordinating a bunch of developers who are using a bunch of AIs, then like, yeah, I think your days are numbered, unfortunately. Love your, uh, some lag there, it seems. Oh, is that how? How about now? Is that better? Better. Go, go ahead. Uh, I think I was just saying, like, just in just in reference to the AI, I reckon we've got like two years left. Like, the rate of change is just. I thought we were like kind of slowing down a bit, and then I hit Dali three last week, or, like two weeks ago, and like it's like another step change on all these. Like, um, uh, it's it's better than Dali. It's kind of like Dali five was like here, and then like Dali three is like. It's like another step change. And then, um, but in terms of like coding and stuff, um, yeah, it's, it, coding actually moves a little slower than I expected. Um, but it's going to, it's going to ramp up just because the demand for it. So, yeah, I mean, if you just, if you, you can only write JavaScript, then I would suggest, you know, um, it's very good at writing JavaScript. And that's all I really need to say. Um. <laughs> Exciting stuff. I feel like, um, there has been a lot of people getting interested, more interested in on-chain games through frameworks and tool sets like Mud and Dojo. Things speed up. People need to understand less about smart contracts to be able to build things. If, if, if people want to join you guys, if we know people want to build something, if people are like, hey, this this Loot Survivor game, maybe I can extend it and, and make it more fun. Where can they learn more, find you guys? Yeah, I mean, we're... Come to the Discord. Actually, um, you can put in the show notes. Um, uh, come to the, the Dojo Discord and the Realms Discord. Um, within there, there's there's a vibrant community of people that will willing to help out um, and you know talk about games. Um, they, within the within the Realms world now, there's 11 different teams building games. Um, all of them using Dojo except for Loot Survivor. Um, but I suspect that, that there probably will be a Loot Survivor Dojo game within a few months. Um, 
Uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a very vibrant community of people that and it's, everything's built open source. There's a, you know, a very strong, um, uh, a very strong community. Um, there's a lot of code being written and everyone will help out. So yeah, jump into the discords. Um, there's actually a hackathon happening this weekend. I don't know when this show is going to launch, but, um, not before that. Yeah. Well before that. Not before um, that. Not before that. Okay. Well, anyway, there was a hack. There was a hackathon. Um, so yeah. But anyway, just like you know, like building anything, you need to just dive in and try to do something. So try to build tic tac toe or try to build rock paper scissors um, and experiment with the entire stack. Um, I probably wouldn't suggest try to build recreate a, a single slot loot survivor style game as your first foray, because um, that's some pretty um, intense Cairo. But um, but yeah, just try to build the basic, simplest basic game in a week, and you can definitely do it. If you know JavaScript and you know smart contracts, um, you can definitely do it now. Fantastic. Yeah, and I'd just say I'd just encourage people to be brave. I mean, I think I think there's so much opportunity here, right? We're at the we're at the birth of provable programs, right? And it's just there's so much opportunity that you don't have to be the best, right? Like if you want to be a professional you know, soccer, football player, you pretty much have to be the best. And you probably know by the time you're 12, if you're the best or not, right? Like the state, like it, you just, the competition's so high, but in the case of like on-chain gaming or I mean, even just provable programs generically, there's just so much opportunity right now. And, you know, Starkware via Cairo has done so much work to abstract this, right? I mean, Cairo Zero was pretty t difficult to write in, Cairo One is is a really nice language to write in, and the fact that you're getting programs that can be proved through Starks as an output of that is absolutely mind blowing. I mean, it's so much value for a developer, and so I just see it as you know maybe there was like two boats, and you're on one boat where you you know you don't have this these skill sets, or you perceive that you don't have these skill sets, and you see this other boat, and you want to get there, but they're too far away and you don't know how to swim. It just feels like every year, every day, these two boats get closer and closer and they're not as far away anymore as you think in terms of you being able to leverage AI to, to generate some of these experiences on chain and do so in a way that's provable, that can actually scale across a million node decentralized network. I mean, we're very close. So there's so much opportunity and the, the barrier to entry is constantly coming down. So um, if you look today and you're like, oh, that's still too complex, I just encourage those people to come back in a month, right? Because like things like Dojo, things like Mud, they're, they're constantly bringing down that barrier. That's the whole idea. So um, yeah, just continue to, to keep an eye on things. And at a certain point, I would recommend just going for the jump and just spending an entire night, use AI, use Copilot, use these tools. And just like Loaf said, see if you can get something basic up. Because once you get something basic up, um, you can iterate. And I just think there's so much creative opportunity locked into a lot of people's minds that haven't traditionally been developers and therefore haven't been able to manifest those opportunities or those, those, those experiences. And I think if we can unlock those as a space, like that's the next bull market, hands down. Because we just get, instead of having like a thousand experiments a day that we're running, we go to a million experiments a day that we're running. Um, and I think that's 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 the next that's the next bull cycle. Yeah, and with AI, you can definitely go solo. I, I you, if you go solo, you can go fast, and it doesn't matter how good your game is, just just go fast. And um, you can definitely build a game. I built a game 
a few weekends ago, although I do know the framework pretty well in in a few in a couple of days. So um, I think if you're just starting fresh, you could definitely do it within a week. Awesome, good. Take that as a friendly suggestion by Luthier and Loaf to um, if you can, if you want, if you're interested, go out there and build something. Loaf Luthier, thank you very much for joining. This was a pleasure. Um, good to be updated on the weird stuff that's happening in the edges of the web three gaming space um appreciate your time listener thank you for listening if you made it here really appreciate you go build as we suggest here and look forward to you but to speaking with you in the next episode ciao